many may be seated. As, uh, as our pastor for this morning, our preacher, Andrew Sugar, comes forward now. We do want to say again, we appreciate uh, his time here with us, and we look forward to the end of Joel. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure again to be with you all this weekend. I want to thank James and the session for uh, the invitation to have me. James mentioned last night, uh, I've known or we've known one another. I've known James and Beth for the better part of 15 years or so. James used to serve as the associate pastor under my father, who was a senior pastor at the White Oak ARP Church down in Moreland, Georgia. So we've known each other for the better part of 15 years. I will say, though, it wasn't until I grew a beard that I felt that he actually befriended me. Uh, until that point, we were more acquaintances, but I appreciate the full acceptance now uh, that I've got the beard. I do bring uh, greetings to all of you as well from your brothers and sisters at the Cottle Creek ARP Church in Mooresville, North Carolina, where I serve as a senior pastor. That's only about an hour and a half due north from here up I-77, just above Charlotte. And uh, they bring or send their greetings to you as well. What well, has been a joy to be with you as we have looked at the book of Joel this week, and as James mentioned in his prayer a moment ago, not necessarily the always the cheeriest of material, because this is one of those minor prophets in which there is a message of judgment, and judgment's never something we love to listen to. And yet, as we heard in the Sunday school hour just a few moments ago, this is not just a book about judgment. This is a book about redemption. This is a book about grace. This is a book that ultimately points us forward to our great salvation in Jesus Christ as well. So there is much for us to get from this short book of Joel. And this morning we come to the last chapter. So if you've been with us this entire weekend, if nothing else, by the time we finish this morning, you can tell everybody that you studied an entire book of the Bible this weekend. So there's something to show for it. You know, I think uh, the events of the last couple of years with, with COVID, with the political upheaval, with economic downturn, with all the, the problems that we have faced, not only as a, as a nation, but as a world even, these events have caused a lot of people to, to ask whether we're living now in the last days. Whether that time for Jesus to come again is finally at an imminence. That it's going to happen any moment now. And I suppose that kind of wondering is natural. Anytime there is a great disruption, anytime there is great disaster that grips people, they begin to wonder if that is the final sign that Jesus is about to return. All throughout history, since Jesus walked this earth, people have wondered that. Even in, even in the last couple hundred years, people have wondered that. Whether it was with, with COVID and everything surrounded it, or the, the Cold War, or the World War II, World War I, going back to the Civil War, the Great Depression, whatever the event might be, these kinds of disruptions, these sorts of things that shake us from our, sort of our, our normal pace of life, make us start thinking about eternal things. Now personally, I'm of the opinion that the things that we've experienced these last few years is not so much the final sign that Jesus is going to return, though none of us know that day or the hour, but rather than being a final sign, these are just another tremor, another thing building and pointing ahead to the fact that that day is drawing near. Every day that we're alive, every day that we live is a day closer to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, as we move into the final chapter of Joel this morning, we come to a passage that actually has as its focus this final day, this coming day of judgment. I've mentioned now the number of times this weekend that the great theme of the book of Joel is captured in this phrase, the day of the Lord. That phrase is mentioned in all three chapters, sometimes multiple times in the chapters of the book of Joel. And that is a day, that is an event that is marked both by the judgment of God on those who are sinful, but also the grace of God, the blessing of God on those who have walked faithfully before him. And as I mentioned last night, the day of the Lord is manifest anytime God intervenes in human history, either with judgment or blessing. And each time there is a manifestation of this day of the Lord, it's building towards that final day when Jesus returns. And that's really what Joel 3 is pointing us ahead to. While in its original context, it's written to Judah in the aftermath of everything they had experienced, the greater meaning, the ultimate fulfillment of this chapter is found in that day that we are all looking forward to and longing for. So let's look then and hear what God has to say through his prophet one last time as we look at Joel chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples, You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. 
so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray together. Lord our God, as we come this final time to the book of Joel this weekend, as we read these verses, as we contemplate your plan for all of creation, for all of history, for all of humanity, we recognize that there is a day coming. A day that will be a fearful day of judgment for those who have refused Jesus Christ, but a day that will also be a wonderful day of eternal glory for those who have embraced Him through faith. So Lord, we pray then this morning that you would speak clearly to us in your word, that you would reveal our standing before you in our own hearts and our own minds, that you would turn our hearts to you, but you would also turn our hearts to our neighbors and those who right now are walking in darkness, who are in the path of coming judgment. Give us a burden for their salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder if any of you have your elevator speech ready. You know what an elevator speech is? An elevator speech is if you were to get on an elevator in the near future and someone walks in with you and right as you hit the button to go to your floor, they turn to you and say, hey, you look like a Christian. What's the Bible all about? And in those few moments before the elevator reaches the floor and the doors open, what would you say to that individual? How would you summarize the overall story of the Bible? If you had 30 seconds, if you had 45 seconds, how would you summarize the Bible? Think about that for a moment. What would you say to somebody if they said, I've seen the Bible, I've never read it, what's, what's it all about? Well, a helpful summary that, that kind of grasps the entire storyline of the Bible It only requires four words is this. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Have you heard that summary before in the course of your lives? That is the grand story, the grand arching narrative of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Of course, we understand it begins with creation. This is what Genesis is all about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. God created a world that was perfect in holiness. Of course, we also know that shortly thereafter, mankind fell into sin. So creation leads to the fall. As Adam and Eve reject God's word, they grasp that that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they plunge all of us, all of humanity and the created world as well, into sin and into chaos. And yet, despite that failure, despite that tragedy, God steps in. God intervenes through Jesus Christ to accomplish and apply redemption to His people. 
And so you have creation, you have the fall, you have redemption, and all that now remains for us is what? Restoration. When the new heavens and the new earth are established and everything is made perfect and holy again. This is the great storyline of the Bible. Something we can all memorize. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And in some ways, this this storyline is repeated in various parts of the Bible and Joel is actually a wonderful example of that. If you think back to the story of of God's people, God created, as it were, a people for Himself. He called Abram, Abraham, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and through him created a particular people, a covenant people for Himself. And He made them into a great nation. And He gave them a promised land. And He created this people that we call Israel, or as is in the case of the book of of Joel, Judah. But we know that those people would fall, wouldn't they? That's the story of the Old Testament. Time and time again, they would fall away from God. They would fall into sin. They would chase after other gods. And God's judgment would, would come upon them. And that's the condition in which this book opens up. If you were here last night, you know that in chapter 1 of Joel, in the first part of chapter 2, is Judah reeling from God's judgment. They had been hit by this swarm of locusts that had wiped out all the agriculture, all the food in the land, and God was using that judgment as a warning of a greater judgment that He was preparing for them if they did not repent from their sin. Then, as we saw just an hour ago in Sunday school, they did repent And God extended His mercy and His grace to them. When they repented and turned back to Him, God redeemed them from their sin. He relented from disaster. And so we see that God created a people who fell away, but through His grace had been redeemed. And as we come to chapter 3 today, we see what's being held forth now is that final promise. The promise of restoration. A coming day in which God would judge His enemies and pour out blessing on His people. And so we see then that this final chapter is all about this final day, this day of the Lord. God's judgment on His enemies, but His restoration for His people. And what we can see is because that day has yet to come, even in our own time, This is very much a promise for us as well. That's one of the things I've been trying to drive home this weekend. The book of Joel, though it is written to a people thousands of years ago, is also written to us because it is part of God's Word. And so this has much for us today as well. And so as we think about restoration, we see that that's exactly where Joel begins here in this passage. In verse 1, God says, For behold... In those days and at that time when I restore, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, one of the the rules we have in reading prophetic portions of Scripture is that there is usually an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment being held forth. 
The immediate fulfillment in this passage is that the people of Judah were being restored. That's what we saw in Sunday school. Everything that had been stripped away from them was now being brought back. So the immediate restoration was that their their fields were producing crops, their vines were producing wine. They were able to worship in the temple again. But the greater fulfillment of this passage is found in that future restoration that I've mentioned now already. A day that, that in which God will gather all nations to Himself and enter into judgment as we see in verse 2 where God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of My people. Now, there's a couple things we need to understand here in verse 2. First of all, this valley of Jehoshaphat we actually don't know anything about it. We don't know where it is uh, as far as geography is concerned. It's one of those things that sort of stumps biblical scholars. But what we do know about it, what is significant about it, isn't so much its location, but its name. The name Jehoshaphat translates into Yahweh has judged. And so the valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley of God's judgment. Or as we're going to see it referred to later on in this chapter, the valley of decision. God's decision. But secondly, we notice that God will enter into, this, enter into judgment with these nations on behalf of His people. Now the nations, that, that phrase, the nations here is a catch-all term for all of their enemies. All the peoples who had treated God's people with contempt and with cruelty. And we see in this passage that God is now turning the tables. Twice in these verses, God says, I will return your payment back on your own head. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, then then you'll know that there is something similar that we find promised there. In Revelation chapter 6, there's these, these seven seals that are open in order. I think, uh, ladies of the church, you're going to be studying the book of Revelation next year, so this might uh, come in handy for you next year. But in chapter 6, there's these seven seals that are being opened as God's judgment is further being expressed in the world. And in verses 9 and 10, as the fifth seal is opened, we hear this. As, the fifth, as, the, as He opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In that scene are all the martyrs. All those who had died in faith for faith, for Jesus Christ, who had been hated, who had been mistreated, and put to death for their witness. And what we hear from them is a longing for justice to be done on those who had persecuted them. Well, that's what Joel is prophesying about here in chapter 3. God is going to repay those nations, those people who persecuted and troubled His people. And as we move from these first eight verses in this declaration of judgment, we come to the next section, verses 9-16, through and Joel's description of this judgment. And there's some curious language here. In verses 9-10, through there's this this uh, proclamation of war. And in verse 10, he says, "...beat your plowshares into swords, 
and your pruning hooks into spears. And I say that's strange language because we're used to the reverse of that that we find in Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, where God declares that the people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But here in Joel, it's the complete opposite of that. Those farm tools are being turned into weapons of war. So what do we, what do, we do with that? How do we make sense of that? Well, we understand it by look, seeing that, that both prophets are looking at this from different ways. Isaiah was looking at the ways in which God's salvation would come upon the nations through the witness of his people. But Joel is looking at it from the other side where he sees God's judgment coming against those nations that would not turn to him despite the message of the people. And so God calls, as it were, on the nations that are opposed to him to prepare to do battle with him. To come and meet Him, the Lord God, in this valley for a moment of judgment. For a moment of confrontation. Now, what kind of contest will that be? God versus the nation. Who wins that battle? It's God, right? Everybody should be nodding their heads. It's God. God's going to win that battle. He's going to win that confrontation. It's going to be completely one-sided. If you look at verse thing, verse 13, it says, Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. I imagine around here in Fairfield County, you've got plenty of fields where people grow hay, right? And a couple times during the year, it's time for the hay to go down. And so those fields that you've driven by for weeks and weeks that you saw the hay growing two and three feet tall, finally one day you come by and the tractors come through and cut it all down and it's all laying on the ground ready to be bound up. Well, that's the imagery here in Joel chapter 3. There is a day coming when, when the harvest will be ripe, when the sickle will be put to the root and all will be cut down. And the imagery here is of God bringing this, this, uh, this judgment upon the nations. This sickle is a sickle of judgment. And he says that he will tread them in the winepress. And of course, this is another, uh, another scene that the book of Revelation captures. In, in Revelation, John talks about the angel coming in chapter 14. And he's told to put in your sickle and gather together the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is really a terrifying image of God's judgment, of what that day will be like when the Lord judges the peoples, when He judges the nations. The number of those who stand in judgment is represented in verse 14 where it says multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision. And that corresponds with that scene I just read about in the book of Revelation where God will tread the winepress of His fury. And what I didn't read is the aftermath of that. Where we're told that the blood will run as high as a horse's bridle and as wide as miles around. This is what's going to take place in the valley of decision. And contrary to how some people want to interpret this passage, this is not a valley in which people will be given one last chance to bow their knee to the Lord and avoid His judgment. No, this is the valley in which God's judgment will come. God will be the one who weighs His opponents and finds them wanting. Now let me ask you a question, Christian. 
Because again, this is not one of those passages that we like to hear. This is a hard message for our ears. But how should we respond to it? Because both Old Testament and New speak of this coming day of the Lord. That there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of judgment. What should be our response to something like this? Well, it depends on the perspective from which we view it. If we look at it in light of the age-old struggle between good and evil, if we look at it seeing sin as, as cosmic treason against a holy God, if we look at it considering how the world has mistreated God's people over the centuries through hate and abuse and oppression and death, then this coming judgment should be for us comfort. Knowing that God will provide Recompense that God will bring vindication on those who have been his enemies. While that may sound like a harsh way of viewing this, let's not forget that the church throughout the years has faced persecution. In most of our creeds and confessions as a denomination, they end with some discussion on this final day of coming judgment in which God's people will finally be vindicated. Those saints under the altar in the book of Revelation are crying out, How long, O Lord? All around the world, even now, we have brothers and sisters who gather together each and every Lord's Day for fear of their own life. Some of them dragged away in the hours of the night, thrown into jail, never heard from again because of the hatred shown to them for taking the name of Jesus Christ. And they are longing. They are longing for vindication. And the day of judgment that's coming will provide that. But there's another way we should look at this as well. In addition to seeing that day as a day of vindication, we should also look at it in light of our current relationships and the fact that that day has not yet come. This threat of God's coming wrath should grieve us. And what should grieve us is knowing that we have loved ones. We have friends, we have family members, we have neighbors, we have co-workers, we have classmates who are standing right now in danger of this kind of eternal judgment and knowing that their opportunity to repent is growing shorter each and every day. And so reading something like Joel chapter 3 should actually propel us into evangelism because we don't want this for them. We want better for them. We want eternal glory for them. This is where the words of, of 2 Peter come in so helpful for us. Second Peter chapter 3, he's speaking about that day to come. And he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, friends, this day of judgment is going to come. We don't know when. No man knows the day or the hour. We don't know when, but we know that every time the sun sets and rises, it is that much closer to coming. But it hasn't yet arrived, which means there's still time for repentance. There's still time for evangelism. There's time for you and for me to be bold and courageous and to take that next step with our family and our friends and talk with them about Jesus and eternity. Yes, I get that sometimes it's awkward. I get that sometimes family dynamics make it difficult to talk about eternal things. But isn't a temporary awkwardness better than an eternity of suffering? 
Where is our heart for the lost in our community? Where is your heart for those whom you love and know who you row right now are standing in fear of judgment? Oh, may the Lord give us hearts that love these lost in our midst that will propel us to them. Because rather than eternal judgment, they could very easily, by the grace of God, experience eternal blessing. And that's exactly what Joel holds forth for those who do turn to the Lord. For those of us who love God and who look to Jesus Christ in faith. Because for us, this final day of the Lord, this will not be a day that we have to worry about. This will not be a day of fear, but a day instead marked with gladness and eternal delight. You see, in the final verses of this chapter, Joel transitions from God's wrath at his enemy to his protection and his blessing on his people. And he describes to them that in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain will come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley. What Joel is talking about here, friends, what Joel is talking about is heaven. He's talking about what Jesus would later promise in the Gospel of Matthew to all of us who follow hard after Him, who look to Him in faith. Those good words that all of us long to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Master. Come, Jesus says, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is what awaits us, friends. This is heaven. And I'm not talking about the intermediate state. I'm not talking about when we die and our bodies rest in their graves and our souls go into the presence of God. No, I'm talking about the final day when Jesus Christ returns and our bodies are raised and are glorified and and reunited with our souls And we spend all of eternity in the very presence of God Himself. This is restoration. This is the day that all of us are longing for. It's what's promised to each and every person who will receive Jesus Christ by faith. And we have no idea how glorious it will be. It's kind of like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, No eye has seen. No ear has heard, nor a heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. No, we can't imagine all the blessings that God has in store for us in this new heavens and the new earth, but we do know the chief blessing. That chief blessing will be seeing Jesus face to face and being welcomed into His heaven forevermore. You see, this is the culmination of the great narrative of the Bible. From creation to fall to redemption to restoration. And he who testifies to these things, even Jesus himself says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, how our hearts long for the return of Jesus Christ. How our hearts desire to see You face to face and to dwell in Your presence and in Your peace forevermore. But Lord, even as our hearts long for that day, would You also break our hearts for those who right now have not yet inherited that good promise. 
Those who even now are groping about in darkness because they do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you would prick the hearts of everyone here this morning. That you would give us a burden for them. That we would be bold and courageous to speak to them in love about Jesus Christ and the hope that is found in Him. So Lord, would you propel us in to evangelism? Would you help us to be bold and courageous for you? And would you use us, even in our weakness, to be channels of your strength and your power through your Holy Spirit, bringing many sons and daughters to glory? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take time now to confess.